Welcome to Tech Talks, a podcast about the impact of technology on humanity. I'm Kirsten Martin, the director of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center, or what we like to call ND Tech. In these discussions, we discuss an important idea, paper, article, discovery, and tech ethics. And today, I'm so excited to be joined by Sunil Betty. Sunil is an assistant professor of business law and ethics at the Kelly School of Business at IU, Indiana University, where his research focuses on intellectual property, marketing law, ethics, and brand strategy. He teaches classes in business ethics, corporate law, and fashion law and ethics. His research employs lots of different methods because of his many degrees that he has, which is super helpful when you're looking at tech ethics, to answer business-relevant questions that sit at the intersection of law, marketing, and public policy. And many times, his work makes its way into tech ethics, specifically around marketing, marketing decisions, markets, and the decisions of firms. And in this series, our goal is to take this one idea and examine the larger implications for the field of tech ethics. And today, we want to take a deeper dive with you into this article that you recently had on the myth of the chilling effect in the Harvard Journal of Law and Technology. Um, and I, I really liked not only the findings of this paper, but I really like how you handled the setup or the grounding, as we would call it, as to like why theoretically is this an interesting thing to talk about? And you tackle some of our favorite ideas in tech ethics that we're always batting away, which is both the First Amendment and Section 230, which I thought was great. Um, and so the article starts with this idea of the First Amendment and the idea of the chilling effect. And I thought you summarized this really well with the theory is that if citizens are not confident of exactly what speech is being limited, they may overregulate their speech in fear of sanctions and hence may chill, in quotes, their speech in an unnecessary way. And I, what I liked was that you were trying to take this idea from the First Amendment and see how it was operative for private companies. And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about this because the First Amendment applies to the government. A lot of times it's, I'm sure, frustrating to you, too often just thrown around with companies. And so I, I thought maybe you could just take a second and talk about that issue, you know, how you dealt with it in this paper, because I thought it was brilliant. For sure. Um, you know, first, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. So it's really interesting. We always say the First Amendment and we we... We talk about the First Amendment in response to private companies, but as you said, it doesn't apply, right? So the First Amendment, the text of the First Amendment says Congress shall not make a law. So the idea is the First Amendment only applies when Congress is acting, when, when it's the Senate, when it's the legislative, the, the House, or sort of any government entity. It doesn't really apply when in private individuals say things. So for example, you know, I used to be at a law firm. That law firm might tell me in my contract, you aren't allowed to say things that are bad about the law firm. Perfectly fine. Not a violation of the First Amendment. It not, doesn't even implicate the First Amendment. And so often we have the, you know, we have people kind of misnomering Always. as applies yeah. to private entities, but, but it doesn't. That being said, even though the First Amendment as a legal principle doesn't apply, some of the effects of speech regulation that are talked about in the sort of public government arena can certainly make their way into the private arena. And that's sort of the impetus of both the thought processes of the article and the methodology of the article to really see, okay, we have this argument that people make about the chilling effect in the government realm, you know, and people are starting to make that same argument, even though it doesn't violate the First Amendment necessarily, they're still trying to make that argument in the private realm. And so the idea is, can I test that and see mm -hmm. if it actually happens? So in some ways, to be most charitable to people that throw around the First Amendment with private companies, 
what you're picking up on is the fact that they're worried about the same chilling effect by content moderation um, if it's arbitrary or over aggressive or something along those lines that our speech could be chilled, which, which we might decide is good or bad or something along those lines. But that's what they're trying to get at with these claims of the First Amendment of uh, really they're just worried about speech being chilled in a way that's not good or something yeah. that we don't not appropriate or something that we don't want. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, yeah. I think that's what's going on. If we're being charitable to people who's talking <laughs> First Amendment with private, it certainly is not about legality. Well, it's illegal or, and that's why it's relevant for tech ethics. It really comes down to a question of ethics on, is this sort of the types of things that we want businesses to do independent of, of what's legal. But, but I, I want to sort of you know, clear sort of ground clearing a little bit about the chilling effect, because I think sometimes it's a little bit confused where, you know, we think of, oh, well, sometimes there's a chilling effect. Sometimes there's not. Is it right? Is it wrong? You know, there's two effects that happen when you say people can't say something, right? So for example, I'd say, if I say, you know, students are not allowed to say Professor Beatty abuses animals. I don't, right? But right, let's say that's the rule. Okay. Well then, you know, whoever is my student is not allowed to say, you know, Professor Beatty kicked that dog that he saw. That would be a lie. Right. And it would go against sort of what the rule is. All right. And that's fine. That's not really chilling. The problem is that rule may also sort of prevent a student from making a joke. Maybe the student wants to say, oh, well, Professor Beatty's like Michael Vick. He's so aggressive. Right. Okay. Well, now they're not saying anything about, you know, animal abuse. They're not lying or anything, but it's close. And that maybe we would be okay with them saying, but the fact is this sort of rule prevents them from saying that. That's the chilling effect. So every time we have a rule, it certainly affects people's speech, but it might affect people's speech in the exact way we want it to. Great. But then it also might affect in ways that we don't anticipate or we don't intend. And that is the chilling effect. And that's what I'm trying to sort of capture. And that's what people are saying is problematic with these private companies enacting sort of speech regulations. So, right. So if I understand, even, even with a surgical strike um, content moderation, which is you're not allowed to say, hey, that I uh, abuse dogs or something along those lines, there could be this shadow or cloud that when the, when the surgical strike hits, it's like kind of like the flume that comes out from it, that's going to capture other things that we don't intend for it. We just are saying you can't defame me in some way. But we might actually capture it. It reminds me of like with content moderation on social networks, sometimes the people who are trying to fight like white supremacy or mm -hmm. racist comments mm -hmm. get moderated out of calling it out. That's not the intent, you know what I mean? But, um, but it's very difficult to enact a policy without either it being chilled or like there being some sort of like overflow from it yeah, um, exactly. and people being afraid to talk about it. Correct. And the idea is that, you know, the more narrow we get, right, you aren't allowed to use the word S-H-I-T. Okay. That's probably, maybe that would chill saying the word shoot. Okay. But we don't really care. Right. But the more narrow we get, the less we have these flume sort of effects, these chilling Right. But then the problem is there's a there's a balance because the more narrow we get, the less really that the speech regulation is doing. The broader we say, you know, you can't say racist remarks. Okay, that's covering a lot of stuff, but is it covering jokes? Is it covering, you know, real dialogue about race that, that, that isn't necessarily harmful? Potentially. And that is what, if people don't want to say that because they're afraid, that's the chilling effect coming into play. 
Yeah, that's great. So then uh, the other bane of our existence is um, the misunderstood Section 230 makes a little appearance there for briefly. But So I didn't know if you could just speak just briefly about Section 230, just because similar to the First Amendment, it's kind of like yeah. batted around like a wiffle bat and people no, don't you know, understand. So I'm certainly not a 230 scholar, and the, but, but what I sort of get from it is this is idea that we cannot hold tech companies liable for what is said on their platform. Right, that's the first sort of cut at it. We can't hold them liable. Okay, and that's sort of fine. I think that's you know they're not responsible for what sort of customers or or people are tweeting or, or writing on Facebook. They can't be held responsible. That's hard. The other cut at it is because of that, we also actively give them sort of freedom to limit how people are speaking on their platform. We specifically say you can kind of do whatever you want because you're in this weird sort of tech realm, right? Where you might see other sort of public resources we don't say. So for example, if you know you owned a mall, you might not be able to say, well, no protesting at this mall. You know, the court has said, oh, listen, that's sort of so public in nature that we're going to say you can't sort of violate the First Amendment or you can't have speech restrictions. Section 230 effectively says, tech companies can do really whatever they want about mm. with the content on their platform. They can limit it. They can also not limit it. And we're not going to hold them responsible for either that decision. You're right. And so it actually gives them the freedom to do that, to Correct. do a little a content moderation. Because otherwise we would, we society would see them as meddling with the content in some way, getting their hands in, in a, a, like a Lockean way, you know, kind of mixing their property with that property. And, and all of a sudden, having some ownership as to what the content was. Um, and so what they said was, no, 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 we want you to be free to moderate the content if you so desire to the way that you wish. You know, to, to, you, one can be Twitter, one can be Facebook. You make different decisions. That's all fine. You don't have to. You can do whatever you want. You can moderate it or you can not moderate it. We're going to say it doesn't violate any law. It actively, we're going to give you the power to do it. That's effectively what 230 is doing. Right. Yeah. And in some ways, I mean, it makes it so less of business law decision. It's a business ethics decision. Yeah. So like whatever you want to do, it has to be strategic and ethical because they're not the lawyers. I mean, they'll just say, yes, you can. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it doesn't really give you the should, you know, of what you should do. And that's what I think is so interesting about on the tech side, these content moderation decisions. You know, when people say, well, it's fuck the first amendment. It's actually not. No. It's literally a 100% ethical decision. Now, are you balancing, you know, you're balancing interests of various stakeholders, maybe it's society, maybe it's customers, maybe it's shareholders, maybe it's justice, maybe it's diversity. Right. You know, you're balancing, that's literally what business ethics is, right? So this is a, in some ways a pure tech ethics decision, which is makes yeah. it cool. Yeah, th that's true. I hadn't really thought of it that way, is that um, what's so interesting about it is, and what's interesting about it in some content uh, moderation decisions within social media companies is actually more the lawyers making the decision you know, the engineers are actually proposing ways to moderate the content, as we saw with the Facebook papers, and the lawyers are stepping in. But it's really, it's, it's not, that, that might not be the expertise that they need to be making those types of decisions, because they're only going to say, yes, you can, because the law gives them the freedom to do it, sure. but it doesn't really give you the should. Exactly. And, that, and that, that's the ethics question, which is what, which I find it so fascinating. That's why it's such a cool sort of topic. Right. And so the, so then, so that's, that's the background, which yeah. I think you make a great case on this. And then the study I thought was brilliant because, and you should explain it better than me, but you gave people like, you actually tested whether or not people would moderate their content based on different 
policies or like, like a different, is that right? Like content moderation policies, like a, a zero strict in general type of thing. Exactly. And so, so, so the idea you might say, well, what we really want is what we really would want is the government to say, you can't say X, Y, Z, and then measure what happens. That's so hard to do. Let economists right. do that. You know, that's, that's <laughs> tricky and, it, and, and, and it, you know, event studies, that's really hard to do. So the yeah. question is, can we sort of in a private setting, mimic content moderation and then see what people do. And so what I did is I, I, I allowed people to write sort of Yelp-like reviews, like negative reviews about some sort of dining experience they had. It was during COVID. So I figured a lot of people had you know, takeout or Uber Eats, a lot of dining experience. So I said, you know what, write a really negative review, just write whatever you want. And then some people I said, there is no restriction, write whatever you want. In others, I said, you may not use certain words. And I chose very, I chose, you know, I chose words that were generally cuss words um, or really highfalutin vocabulary words that people wouldn't use. Um, These are words like, just to say, like repugnant, putrid, gruesome, um, yes. S-H-I-T, exactly. F word, that type of thing. Those yeah. type of words, right. And then, and then I gave a third, uh, it was a third sort of instruction where you can't say a general categories of words. And I said, you know, harmful language, racially charged language, offensive language. The idea would be that in the condition where I don't tell them anything, they're going to say whatever they want. Okay. In the condition where I tell them you can't say these words, they're not going to say those words. Fine. And in the condition where I say you can't say these categories of words, ideally they wouldn't say those categories of words, which is fine. Well, and that, that's sort of, and that's not a chilling effect. That would be the actual effect that we want. Right. The chilling right. effect is the effect beyond that. Right. And so the question is, how do we isolate that? The, well, the way I isolated it was I tried to create these speech restrictions so that they would actually have no effect. So, for example, if I tell you, you know, go out and write about, you know, your negative dining experience, but don't say the word Professor Beatty, you might be like, right, oh, right, right. I never would say that anyway. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Right. So if I say don't say that. It shouldn't change your speech. So that was the idea. The idea was to choose sort of words, S-H-I-T, repugnant, putrid, words that nobody really uses I see. based upon pretesting, or say, don't use racially charged language. No one said anything racist. No one, no one was ever going to say it. So really, if there were no chilling effect, we should see the speech be consistent across all of those three things, because it's not actually doing anything. Instead, what I found is I found people did change their speech, even though the speech restrictions shouldn't have actually changed their speech. It shouldn't right. require them because they weren't going to say those words anyways. No one was going to say something racist when they were talking about an Uber Eats experience. They just weren't going to say it. So the question is, well, how did they change it? And how do we sort of contextualize that? And what it turns out is people actually used more positively toned words in order to sort of, you know, the person that's making the decisions, in order to maybe trick the person making the decision, in order to get around the content moderation, for whatever reason, they overcorrected their speech. They didn't need to correct it at all, and they overcorrected it. But they overcorrected it in a way that made the speech more positively sort of charged. And you might say, okay, that's bad. That's a bad thing because what we wanted was negative reviews. And so now the chilling has made it more positive. So here would be a, you know, a political example. You might say, don't lie about politicians. 
And now people aren't lying about politicians, but they're also not being as critical as they would be, right? So you're like, oh, that's bad, that's bad. So I said, well, let's see if that's actually true. I then took those negative reviews and had people rate those negative reviews. And it turns out in each category, the reviews were equally negative, which means that the message that was being communicated by those negative reviews was equally negative. The message was communicated. Right. It didn't matter that I said, don't say racially charged language. People could still communicate what they wanted, but they did so in a slightly more positively toned manner. So if we take that into like outside of this negative review context, that may mean, and as I suggest, as I argue, that actually these sorts of content moderation that maybe Twitter, Facebook, Instagram are, are doing will allow people to still express what they want to express, but do so in a way that is, you know, more civil, in a way more positive that I could actually, you know, not only not chill speech, but actually promote more general dialogue and more robust dialogue around controversial topics. That's what I found so fascinating about this uh, finding was that like the, there was no change in the likelihood to patronize the restaurant. So the actual like likelihood to go back. So they conveyed the same substance of what they wanted to convey. They just did so with more civil speech, which as I jokingly said to you before this started, which my favorite lawyer said when I was telling him about your story said to me, isn't that the whole point of content moderation yeah. is that you have a civil place that people feel safe to be on. Um, and I, and I thought that that was like such a fast, well, one, the study design is simple, which is always the best. And then, but also the way that you did the analysis was so clear of, you know, kind of this idea of tone versus substance um, and that they, there was a chilling effect, but it wasn't the chilling effect that we're all afraid of. This was a chilling effect to make sure that they weren't, instead of not saying repugnant, they also didn't say awful. You know what I mean? Like that they used different words in order to convey what they were trying to say. Right. And, and, and you know, often what we say, and particularly in the private context, and we say, listen, if Twitter says you can't say false statements, you can't say derogatory statements, then people actually aren't going to do anything. They're just going to be like, you know what? Not going to say anything. Deactivate my account. That's also part of the chilling effect. And people get afraid, right? That was quite the opposite. No, people had the option to exit. They could have said, okay, I'm not, I don't, fine, I won't get paid. I won't, I won't, right. if I can. No, people said, you know what? I'm going to say it. I'm going to say what I want to say, but I'm going to find a way to say it around your restriction. And it turns out the way I'm going to say it, eh, it's actually kind of in a positive manner. And you can imagine this applying to, to sort of dialogue about politics when someone wants to criticize one party or another party or want to criticize a politician rather than sort of saying the chilling effect being, oh, well, they're not going to say anything at all. Instead, we say, no, they will say it, but they'll find a way to say it in a way that is more civil, which will ideally create more conversation, which will then sort of create more robust dialogue, which is exactly what we want, right? Yeah. And that and that's the, that's the other part of the chilling effect that we always ignore or I, people that spout the First Amendment about these things or the chilling effect ignore. You also point out that we don't talk enough about the chilling of speech when there's no content moderation with of the target of hate speech. And that could be racial, I think, minorities, women, LGBTQ+. And it doesn't even have to be that you're a member of a specific group. If I see racialized speech, I'm white, I that would upset me to feel unsafe on the platform because there I could be targeted as well. And that that is a type of chilling effect that we don't talk about, about the absence of it. So just like we have surgical strikes with content moderation, 
every bullying you know, tweet or every bullying post on Facebook or a Facebook group that's um, about hate speech is really the same type of chilling effect, if not larger, to an entire group of people that we just don't even see. Yeah. You know, what's, what's funny, Kristen, is, is I didn't even call that a chilling effect. But now that you've said it that way, I think that is exactly what that is. Whereas content moderation has a, both a chilling effect when you're moderating content, but it also has a chilling effect when you're actively not moderating. Right. Exactly. And so the question is, what are these two poles and how do we sort of balance these poles? And, and you know, my studies suggest, well, maybe we can sort of strike the balance in terms of moderation because it will allow people to have a conversation and it won't sort of chill those people and they won't sort of leave the platform. And they'll just change their speech slightly and that will actually maybe create more robust dialogue. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's what, and because what I liked about it is that you kind of showed a path forward on the ability to do content moderation to make people feel better without actually, it doesn't have to change the substance. There's better and worse ways to do content moderation. So, and we see this in practice. We see the difference of content moderation on Facebook versus Twitter. And, and you can see the actual implications of it. You know, where, where do white nationalist groups go? Where do they not go? Who, you know, who's, who's upset about Twitter's policies? Who's not upset? You know, you can kind of see who likes these decisions and who doesn't. And so the, the difference of way you tested content moderation is important in that it's not just some versus none. It was different types. Um, different and to types. think so that the through. The idea is that historically we've thought, and this, is, this ties back to the First Amendment, We've thought government restrictions that are very broad are wrong because they're going to have more of a chilling effect than the ones that are, you know, more precise strikes. And that very well may be true. I kind of show that a little bit to some degree, but that broad sort of restriction may still chill in ways that we're okay with. And I think that's the idea. Right? And that's why in the private context, it's it's a little bit different than the public context. Because in the public context, when you think about the government, the government can't take a stand on a specific type of speech. The government cannot say, you know, white. Well, they well they shouldn't. They can't really say, well, white supremacy speech is bad, right. and right. you know, you know, diversity speech is good. They can't say that. Right. Right. right, right. But private companies can. Why not? Yeah, right. Of course, of course they can say that. And they, you would ask a private company, is white supremacy speech good? They're going to say no, right? Obviously. Well. <laughs> Right, they Fingers should. Cross. You would yeah, think, right. right? You would think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can, right, and so the idea is that these companies can make these sorts of decisions. They're an ethics decision, but they they can favor speech. They can favor certain types of speech, we, and so we're allowed to do that. The question is, how do we strike that balance, right? And what are the effects? What are the externalities when we do that? And I think that you know my research shows well, they're not as sort of overblown as people think they are. The externalities not only might be small, but actually might, they might be positive. Right. Yeah. They might be positive externalities, you, you know, and I work in our favor. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Especially if it's done well. And I, and I think, well, you summarize it. I'll just say this. You summarize it really well. If the chilling effect can change the tone of how individuals speak while keeping the content of their speech the same, it could also promote participation in exchanges of ideas from those who would otherwise be offended. The longstanding legal principle then may be reframed as a way to promote ro more robust speech activity rather than deter it. And I think that's the part that I think is missing is that the lack of content moderation, as we were talking about, chills 
speech. It might not be speech that we're not, that isn't prioritized in society, but it is, these are speeches of marginalized groups that, um, and they're not, I don't mean marginalized, like there aren't very many of us. There's lots of us. I mean, it's just that it, they're not being prioritized. And it's important to realize that the lack of content moderation actually, um, disincentivizes people from going on, you know, that it actually has less speech because of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you actually said it right. I, and in hindsight, I wish I would have said it myself in the paper that lack of content moderation does chill. And the idea is, who are we chilling in that? As you say, we're often chilling marginalized groups. We're chilling groups that have been historically marginalized, right? And the ones that we actually, the groups that we want to promote having a sort of a different sort of perspective or bringing their perspective because historically they haven't had the platform. And it's actually those groups that we are preventing or at least creating an environment that they are self-selecting out of our social media platforms. You know what? Maybe the idea is, okay, yeah, we can sort of require, you know, more majoritarian groups to to tailor their speech a little bit, but not so much that they can't say what they want in order to get, you know, marginalized groups to really be able to be active on these platforms. Right. I mean, I think that's sort of a trade-off that I think, you know, an ethics trade-off that tech companies can sort of seemingly make and reasonably make. Right. And they can't if they decide that's their values and the mission of the organization. So if Twitter decides this is the type of speech that I want to have on my platform, these are the types of group I want people to feel safe, which they seem to have done that fairly well in the past, then I'm going to content moderate one way. If another social media company um, decides to do nothing. It's interesting to see, we almost have our own experiment. We can see who's on those, you know, and so you can kind of see where do people feel safe and want to be. And it's where there's some content moderation, not a lot, but a little bit, um, so that it's a place where they're, they don't feel chilled in that way. Exactly. Yeah. So I just, I could keep you here and I would love to talk more, but I know we all have things to do and classes to teach and stuff like that. But I wanted to ask one last question, just like in the area of tech ethics, just broadly, like if there's anybody that you're really paying attention to or um, someone that you want to highlight, you look forward to seeing what they write about or anything along those lines. Yeah. I mean, well, first, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with Elon Musk and Twitter. <laughs> yeah, so I know. I'm very yeah. curious if this sale goes through, particularly yeah. if the aggregate board goes away. You know, what's, what is Twitter going to do with this kind of Because it's hotly contested. I do think, uh, and I know you had him uh, already on on a podcast, but my good friend Vikram Bhargava, oh, Vic's great, really interesting stuff in tech ethics, and I, and I, you know, I would encourage anybody to read a lot of his work, not just what he discussed on your podcast, but some of his other stuff. And so I would definitely; those are two Elon Musk and Vikram. Yeah. I can put them in. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm sure he's, they're like this. Um, I'm crossing my fingers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But yeah, so I, I, that's great. I, that's what I would yeah, say. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with that as well. I, I think um, it's a little bit scary that he thinks things need to change because Twitter is kind of known in the space as they're not perfect, but they're trying and they, they're heading in the right direction. Like they're constantly working. They, they fight to protect their um, subjects and their users from being outed with anonymity. I, uh, but anyway, we'll see what happens. But gosh, Sunil, I really appreciate you being here and us being able to talk about this. I look forward to the next time you write in this space. I'm more than happy to have you back and we can talk about your next article. And I hope to see you um, at the ethics conferences that we go to and all that kind of stuff. And oh, and our workshops. But Of course, anyway. absolutely. Thank you so much, Kristen, for having me. I appreciate having the opportunity to share my research and really enjoy what Notre Dame is doing with the, uh, the Tech Ethics Podcast. So I appreciate Oh, great. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Tech Talks is a production of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center. For more, visit techethics.nd.edu.